everyone. Welcome back to the Health Hacked Podcast. My name is Andy Kraft. And I'm Aaron Kraft. And today we're going to touch on how chemicals from your water bottles may leach into your water, how selenium consumption can improve learning and memory, reversing paralysis with spinal implants, magic mushrooms for depression, and how physical attractiveness impacts your immune system. So let's kick it off with this first one with uh, the water bottle study. Yeah, so this was something we have touched on in previous episodes, talking about how plastic kind of interacts with our food, something we don't really think about too often. Um, A lot of our food and a lot of our liquids are in a plastic container. And it turns out, which we've known this, but this is kind of another another study showing this, is that, that the plastic chemicals can leach into the liquids. So this was a study out of University of Copenhagen, and they we're looking at the number of like chemicals that were that leached from a typical reusable water bottle. So like uh, a Nalgene would be a good example for this. Like you go to the store, you buy a Nalgene. So they bought three different types of water bottles at the store. So these aren't like your like Aquafina water bottles. These are no, no. Re- yeah, reusable. Reusable. Yeah. So this is not, yeah, not like your Aquafina or okay. Uh, whatever other brands you buy, the, the throwaway ones, these are reusable ones. So like a Nalgene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they put liquid in there. So they water, they just put water in there and then they let it sit for 24 hours just to kind of see what would happen over that period of time. Um, and they did a few tests. They did it just with setting the water for 24 hours. And then they did setting the water for 24 hours and then washing it in a dishwasher. So there's two different tests they did. Um, both tests they found a lot of substances, a lot of chemicals leached into the water. So in a new reusable water bottle, they said there's around 500 different substances in the water. Um, here, actually, I'll back up. Multiple tests here. So the first test where they just put the water in the water bottle is 400 different substances. Um, and then after the rinse, so they put it through a dishwasher, so meaning there was soap in there as well. They found actually 3,500 additional substances specifically derived from the dishwasher soap. Um, So a lot of different things kind of going on here, Um, some from the soap, some from the water bottle. Um, And then they did a third test actually where they rinsed it. So they let the water sit, they put it through the dishwasher, and then they rinsed it with just tap water afterwards. And that did actually get rid of some of the leftover dishwasher soap residual and some of the plastic residual just by washing it in water after all of that that did help get rid of some of the chemicals but there were still regardless hundreds and hundreds of substances left in the water just basically from typical use that's what they're trying to mimic here is like you leave your water in for a couple of hours sometimes sometimes you leave it in for half a day or a day throw it in the dishwasher they're just kind of basically how you'd use a typical reusable water bottle they were mimicking that and in these cases some were some better but there ended up being hundreds of different substances. Now, their take on this was they, they, came, they had a, a very reasonable take. They're not saying never use plastic. There's all these toxins in your water, water bottle. Basically, what they're saying is, is that we don't know what these toxins are doing. Not all of them are harmful. In fact, many of them are completely fine. Many of them are not harmful, but we don't know which ones are harmful. Um, they're just There hasn't been enough study in this yet. We don't know the long-term effects specifically. So basically what they're saying is like, this isn't going to kill you. We we simply don't know the long-term effects of using this. So 
opt for glass if you can. Um, this is something we talked about in a previous episode where um, specifically when you're heating up things in plastic, it's much more likely to leach, which is why in this case, when they put stuff through the dishwasher, that was kind of one of the uh, uh, the predictions as to why more chemicals were present after a dishwashing because it heats up that plastic and it kind of wears it down. So not just the soap leaching into the water, but also the heating up of the water, it kind of breaks down the plastic at a quicker rate. So a lot of factors play into that. But either way, when you have food or when you have liquids in plastic, that plastic does come off. It does come off into the food, into the liquid. Um, we don't know if it's harmful. Maybe it's completely fine. Um, but the moral of the story here and the, the, the takeaway is just avoid it if you can. Um, it's not going to kill you one time. We don't know what it will do over time. But when you can offer glass, um, especially when you're drinking or especially when you're heating up, uh, offer glass. That's kind of the takeaway of their study here. Yeah, plastic is very leachy, I guess, is the word that they use. But we've seen that in research around Tupperware. There was a study that they looked at uh, babies with feeding tubes and those babies with more feeding tubes, which are made up of some sort of plastic, have more phthalates in their urine, uh, which is known to to mess up, uh, I believe, testosterone or like, I don't know, sexual organ production, something on those lines. But yeah, plastic is very leachy. So yeah, glass. I use a, I like to see research on this. I use a Yeti, which is, uh, you know, metal. And uh, I that's pretty much drink all my water in there. I probably don't wash it, wash it as much as I should. But yeah, I don't really use plastic for uh, for drinking mm -hmm. water. Yeah, I use I you, our, all of our storing dishes are all glass at this point. We kind of threw out all of our plastic ones and try to just use glass for like Tupperware storage. We don't use Tupperware. We use glass. And then uh, yeah, I almost exclusively drink out of a Yeti as well, which is stainless steel. Uh, I do. I do want to mention two things just real quickly here. They did find two things that are known to be harmful in this, and those are just common endocrine disruptors and insecticides. So they they did point out and specifically find some more like known harmful um, chemicals were in this. So it wasn't like everything they didn't know about. They did point out some ones that have science to back up that they can be potentially harmful. So I do want to mention that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just more, you know, yeah, moral of the story, like you said, use glass when you can. Yeah. All right, moving on to our next story of the week. There was a interesting study that was done around selenium consumption. Now, this was a mice study, so just FYI, it may not apply to humans, but uh, it looks like it, it produces enough evidence to trigger human trials. So selenium is a mineral that our bodies depend on for, for many things, Im immune function, uh, it helps reduce free radical damage may reduce risk of cancer, improve blood flow, regulate thyroid function. There's a lot that selenium does that, that we really need. And it, it's generally, you know, we need it in very small amounts. Um, some can be, some we get through our water, very little, but it's like in Brazil nuts, fish, like salmon and tuna, eggs, uh, liver, sunflower seeds. And generally those kind of foods, that's enough to, to get what we need. Deficiencies are pretty uncommon, but like some people with HIV or with Crohn's really struggle to absorb selenium. So they may need to supplement. So that's a little bit about selenium. We're going to come back to that. There's been some research around 
how, and this is really what stemmed this study that I'm going to talk about, is how exercise can induce hippocampal neurogenesis. So the hippocampus is part of the brain that's responsible for learning and memory. Neurogenesis is the creation of new neurons. So hippocampal neurogenesis produces younger, healthier hippocampus, helps your brain work better at learning and memory. So what they found in this study that and led to this study I'm going to talk about they found that mice who were subject to exercise for four days had better production of these proteins in their plasma than mice who were sedentary. The most significant protein they found was selenoprotein, which is needed for maintaining selenium levels in the brain. They also found that this protein helped promote neurogenesis in the hippocampus. So that study concluded exercise can help with hippocampal neurogenesis. So in this more recent study, they wanted to see, all right, what about exogenous selenium? If, if we give selenium supplementation, would that do the same thing as exercise? And so they had mice supplement with selenium for 28 days, and they found that selenium, in, selenium supplementation increased hippocampal neurogenesis. Uh, it mimicked the effects of exercise through dietary supplementation, um, reverse cognitive decline associated with aging. And, uh, and through this, they, they think that this could be a, a therapeutic solution for elderly people. And they even performed that. So not only did they look at the neurogenesis activity in these mice, but they also performed memory tasks on the mice after the selenium supplementation. They were using older mice, 17-month-old mice, and they put them on this rotating platform that had a shock zone. And over time, the idea is that these mice learn where the shock zone is. I know it's kind of sad, but... Selenium-treated mice were significantly better at avoiding the shock zone. And so it seemed to, yeah, significantly, so that they they attributed that to the selenium supplementation and the neurogenesis uh, in the hippocampus. So they conclude that given that selenium is cheap, it can be readily available in dietary supplement. Uh, you know, side effects are, are minimal. You have, to eat, you have to consume a lot in order to like, overdose on this kind of stuff. Uh, that this should be something that uh, we look at for elderly people. Now, I've never had my levels tested. I looked at our inside tracker reports. I looked at some of the blood work we've gotten in the past and selenium was not on there. Um, the recommended daily allowance for people, the recommended daily intake for adults is 55 micrograms a day. So very small amounts. I eat a lot of fish and eggs, so I'm not worried about it. But I don't know, maybe something that I get in my next appointment um, would probably be great for older people to look at. And, um, you know, I think these are things that we just don't talk about. It's one of those things that if you're deficient, it could have some severe consequences, but we just assume that everyone's okay. So we don't test for it. We don't look at it. And then anytime we make changes like that, it's always reactive instead of proactive. So maybe something to look at, especially if you're older. Yeah, this is not an excuse to not work out and then just supplement with selenium just to keep the <laughs> right. uh, the brain functioning. Still work out, um, but yeah, maybe if your levels are low, still take this. And I was looking at um, eggs. That's probably the most common, I think, source of selenium. So like one egg has uh, 15 micrograms, 30-ish percent of your daily value. So if you're, you know, eat eggs in the morning, you're probably in good shape, especially if you're eating like two or three eggs, you're probably good to go. Um, it isn't only in the yolk. So like if you're eating egg, egg whites, you're probably not getting any of the nutrients. But if you just eat two eggs a day, um, you're probably getting, um, probably getting your dose of selenium in. 
All right, uh, let's move on to the next story. And this was a very interesting one. You probably have seen headlines of this. I made a lot of the mainstream news. Um, it is basically paralyzed people through the use of a spinal implant were able to walk again, which is awesome news. Um, and it was actually not, when I saw the headline, headline I'm like, oh, this is Neuralink. Neuralink has success, success, successfully worked in humans which Neuralink is Elon Musk's company. It's a it's a, a, a brain implant with purposes. The initial purposes of it are to basically help with things like paralysis. Um, it was actually not Neuralink who um, did this, who achieved this. Um, it was, I don't know. I think it was just at a research center. Uh, let's see. In the like uh, Sw Swiss. Switzerland. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So a group of, you know, neurologists and scientists w w have been working on this. And I'll just kind of read you an excerpt of it's obviously very complicated. So I'm going to just read from the article to kind of better explain what this is and what they did. Um, they said the group used uh, magnetic imaging and computed tomography to map the size and layout of neurons in the spinal cord of 27 people and created a predictive model of the average spinal cord. So this helped to show a surgeon where the recipient's bodies to place these electrodes. The researchers then fine tune the electrical current to each individual. There are three people, three, three individuals here who they tested this on. And then it says a, a team of neurosurgeons implanted the device into three people whose spinal cords had been completely severed, causing paralysis, obviously, in the lower body. And then once the implant was in place, each person was able to control the pattern of electrical stimulations using buttons in, on a tablet to help raise or lower each leg. So basically, they have these this implant that they put. Uh, so they have a, a severed spinal cord. They put it at the, below on the lower half of that. And it basically was able to send kind of mimic brain si signals because that's how, how we move our legs. Like we, the spinal cord sends a signal to the brain and it communicates when you have that severed, you can't move anything. But this implant allowed communication basically back to the brain um, and it, through a device. So they're still using a device to kind of, I guess, trigger these signals. Um, so this is was really awesome news. They these people were able to uh, walk fully, like by themselves. They were able to uh, like do body squats. They were able to row. Um, they were able to be physically active. Um, now, obviously, they're not like out sprinting around by themselves. Like it's going to be a a long process where this can be actually something that they use on a daily basis. Like they have to uh, teach their body how to use this device and re-strengthen those muscles again. Um, but they were able to walk basically unassisted, just uh, they're using this device in their hand to basically trigger these signals. So that is uh, excellent news. I'm really excited to see where this goes in the future. And um, I'm interested to see what happens with Neuralink too, because that's kind of the opposite. This is putting it in your spinal cord and sending a signal to the brain, whereas Neuralink would be right. putting a device in your brain and sending a signal to your lower body. So yeah, Neuralink seems to be more comprehensive like this. I mean, this mm -hmm. is obviously awesome. Like if I was paralyzed from the waist down, I'd take this in a heartbeat. Basically, you they have this device in their spine. They can't control that device with their brain, which is mm -hmm. what Neuralink's trying to do. Right. So they can't just think like a you know normal person would. We're like, oh, move my leg up and down or back and forth. I think in order to do these movements like canoeing and bicycling, they 
they had these pre-programmed movements in the device and then they were able mm -hmm. to obviously it still takes muscle yep. to do those things but it's 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 less i think comprehensive than what hopefully can be done with Neuralink. but it's mm -hmm. cool to see that we can get so granular with these these neurons you know these electrical mm -hmm. impulses um these electro electrodes to actually be able to make body parts move yeah yeah this is very very like first stages of this like like you said they basically had to program each individual movement so like uh, mo the the movement of a squat they had to program that um so it is very stage one but i mean the fact that it was even possible is i mean very mind-blowing so yeah yeah uh, hopefully this it will i mean it will continue to progress as our understanding of technology grows so this will be uh really cool to see what happens down the road yeah yeah really interesting okay moving to mental health this is also related to the brain and we've talked about this we put some stories in the newsletter around like psychedelic treatments for depression and this study looked at psilocybin treatment for depression uh, specifically now psilocybin i think most people know that's the hallucinogenic chemical in magic mushrooms uh and um, and so th there's been some research on this in the past this was a randomized controlled trial it was small it was only 27 patients with uh, major depressive disorder but they wanted to see the long-term impact kind of know that the short-term impact is helpful for people with depression but after after 12 months what what do their depressive symptoms look like so they had a psilocybin treatment group and and this was all the treatment was done actually only twice up front but it was done with the assistance of a therapist so this isn't just people just taking a dose of mushrooms out in the field like they this was under a very tightly controlled conditions and then over the 12 month periods in which they were observed they did not or they at least said that they did not consume any mushrooms outside of the study so they evaluated up front and they did uh, two sessions and then they evaluated them at one three six and 12 months and the depressive symptoms were measured before and after treatment using something called the grid hamilton depression rating scale so here's what that assessment kind of looks like if you get a score of 24 or more that indicates severe depression so the higher the score the worse your depression is 17 to 23 is moderate depression 8 to 16 is mild depression and 7 or less is no depression so from for most participants scores for overall treatment decreased from 22.8 which is right pushing up towards um, high moderate depression, close to severe depression. It decreased from 22.8 at pretreatment to, I'm going to go through different time periods. At one week, it went down to, one week after treatment, it went down to 8.7. So that's mild depression. Four weeks, 8.9. Three months, 9.3. That's still mild depression. Seven at six months. Now that's less or no depression, or no, that's, that's no depression. And then 7.7 .7 at 12 months after treatment so that's on the low end of mild and so it, it seemed like it continued to improve oh, even after 12 months and then at, uh 58 percent of people reported remission at 12 months again this was not done for 12 months treatment was not done for 12 months treatment was done only twice up front and then after 12 months it seemed to still be effective and there were no long-term side effects noted um one of the one of the researchers said psilocybin not only produces significant and immediate effects it also has long duration which suggests that it may be a uniquely useful new treatment for depression 
And this is very different from your traditional antidepressant where you have to take it pretty much chronically. You have to take it permanently and it can have some real bad side effects. Now, I'm not saying you should go off antidepressants and just take magic mushrooms. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that this could be eventually, uh, if there's some more research, a good alternative to antidepressants. This was still a small trial, um, short term, but it is interesting to see this. And there's more research being done around it. More companies are getting involved. There's a company called Mind Medicine, which I actually I actually owe some sh own some shares in. Uh, the uh, Shark Tank guy, Kevin O'Leary, he, he's a, he was a big investor in um, Mind Med. It's a biotech company working on developing like psychedelic pills that are specifically for mental health. Uh, it's in, in clinical trials now for anxiety. I have a lot of hope for that, and companies like them. Um, it's just, it's very interesting. I, I, it's, it's good to see that there are alternative treatments being researched. So for the two upfront doses here, were, were those micro doses or were they tip like, I guess, full on doses? Like were these full on trips or were they mild, mild trips or mild yeah. side effects afterwards? That's a, that's a good question. I wasn't able to see like how much they, they gave them. Okay. It did not indicate that it was a micro dose. Normally that's Okay. Specifically called out in a study. Mm -hmm. I, I believe these are like full on, you know, psychedelic or hallucin hallucinogen induced uh, trips. Okay. But they are under, during that time, they're under supervision of a psychologist. Under supervision. And then actually they had, before taking the dose, they had six to eight hours of meetings with treatment facilitators. So they're, mm, they were okay. very, it, it's, you know, they, they didn't take it lightly. And I think that's, when you when we hear studies like this, people are like, "Oh, I'm going to go take magic mushrooms to help depression." I think it really should be done in combination. If you're using it for mental health, it should probably be done in combination with somebody that's trained in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean those numbers are crazy. So from twenty, yeah, twenty three, twenty two point eight, which is close. It's it's high on the moderate scale, almost severe, and after twelve months. 7.7, which is on the lowest end of mile. Like that's, those are, those are great numbers. So that's right. awesome. Yeah. After a full year. So we'll see where that goes. Okay. So I saw an interesting story this week that I wanted to share. It's kind of disturbing. So if you have kids, you may want to um, fast forward a, a few minutes. So in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, police responded to a call from a mother who who said that she was concerned someone was trying to harm her. She told police that the uh, she believed the devil was trying to attack her. Obviously, they asked her about mental illnesses. She said, I don't have any mental illnesses, and then hung up the phone. So the police go to the house to check on her. They find blood leading up to the door. They hear the woman inside singing, and when they knock, she just kept singing even louder. And then one officer looked in the window and found a child's severed head. And this is brutal. So just if, if you, this is your squeamish, just fast forward this. Um, so they knock down the door, find the woman, detain her. They find the, the child's body and then they go in the basement and they find a dog that had been decapitated as well. And basically what had happened is this lady, this mother, um, decapitated her six-year-old boy and dog and said that, you know, the devil told her to do it. And this is very, very alarming. And really what I take away from this is that like, this is what happens when you don't have proper electrolytes. 
Now I know you all thinking like this is sick. This is a dark. This is dark humor. This is not humor. This is this is science. All right. Electrolytes serve a very critical function. They they help with almost every cellular function in the body. Without electrolytes, we cannot function. Your brain cannot function. If you don't have electrolytes, your brain doesn't have the fuel it needs to work properly. If you don't have electrolytes, you start hearing the devil. If you don't have electrolytes, you decapitate your son. So we have a good solution for this pre-mixed drink called Element. You just mix it in your water. It's 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, perfect balance of electrolytes. Just throw in your water. Great flavor, citrus, raspberry, orange. Go to drinklmnt.com slash health act to get yours. Don't be that mom or dad or that uncle or that person that just loses it and starts decapitating people. All right. Fuel your brain with electrolytes so this doesn't happen to you. Drinklmnt.com slash health act. All right, on to a lighter note now. Uh, let's go into our next section of the episode here. Let's go on to the fail of the week. Andy, I think you had a, a very interesting article here talking about how immune function relates to physical attractiveness. Yeah, this is more of a lighthearted one. So I, this section, I feel like this not so fast fail of the week section is always like about diet or COVID. I found a different thing. I wanted to switch up a little bit and the study and a lot of the articles basically touted this as attractive people have better immune system new research reveals one of the articles said it turns out beauty may be more than skin deep attractive people actually have better immune systems so this study what they did is they took 159 volunteers they took photographs of them male and female with neutral faces no makeup and then they took blood samples to to look at their you know immune system health and then they took another like almost 500 volunteers and then they were asked to rate the attractiveness of these people, of, that, of the first group. And what they found is that the people that had the highest scores, aka the most attractive, also had better immune systems, higher white blood cell counts, uh, more efficient uh, natural killer cells, which are, you know, are a huge part of the immune system, and lower plasma bacterial growth. And so there's a high correlation between these two. Those that were more attractive had better immune systems. And so one of the authors, authors of the study kind of was, was pushing this idea saying, you know, people go out to bars, they, they look at someone, uh, they look at the attractiveness of someone. And if, they're, if that, that ranks high in terms of finding a mate, then they're dismissed as being shallow. But really, they're just following their instincts to find a high quality mate. Okay, that may be true. Maybe there is some, I don't know, evolutionary uh, component to this. But I think what happened here is, uh, is sort of a reverse causality. So they say that now they do attribute genes to some of this. But, you know, they the conclusion is, you know, if you're more attractive, you probably have a better immune system when I think the reverse is true and the reverse is actually the cause. So, you know, while genes probably do play a factor here, it's more likely that people who are attractive, they probably engage in healthier lifestyle habits. They probably sleep more. They get good exercise. They have good nutrition. So therefore, I mean, they're going to look better. People that take care of themselves look better. That's just generally how it's going to work. And so as a result of those healthy habits, not only does that make you more attractive generally, or, or I guess I should say society's 
what society views as attractive. Let's just say that. And those things are going to help you have a better immune system. So it's kind of a win-win. I'm not sure being attractive, the fact that you're attractive means that you just have a better immune system. I think it's the other way around. It's not necessarily that, you know, people um, are healthier because they're attractive. It's more like they're attractive because they're healthier. So it was an interesting one. There's some, I saw it shared a few times and, you know, it's a, it's a clickbaity claim, but I just, you know, I think there's a more logical explanation for this as opposed to just, you know, purely your looks. Yeah. And that makes a lot more sense that, uh, people who are engaged in and healthy lifestyles generally are like, because you're, those healthy lifestyles make you physically, typically physically more attractive. Right. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, that's a good, that's a good one though. Good one to end on. Let's do our, uh, our plugs of the week or weekly plug. We're going to pitch something that we've been trying out lately, something we've been enjoying. Um, I have a, I think we both have actually products this week. So the product I am going to talk about is a percussion gun. We've talked about this in the past, a percussion gun also called like a massage gun. Um, I'm trying to think of the most popular brands. What's the, like the main brand? The Theragun. Theragun's yeah. the one. Yeah. That's the one you've probably seen Instagram ads for. It's like $600. It's very expensive. You can buy cheaper ones on Amazon. But um, I've, I've had one for a year, about maybe two years, a year, I think a year now. And I use it probably on a daily basis. Um, I, I love these things. And there is actually some data to support the benefits of these. Um, it does actually physically help you loosen up your muscle and like lengthen up the muscle. It helps warm it up. Um, this has been shown in studies. Um, it also helps kind of prevent uh, DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, a little bit. Um, I used it this weekend on Saturday morning. I ran 10K, which for me is a lot. I don't run. I'm not a runner. So running six miles was a stretch for me. So right after the race, I I used this, before, actually before and after the race, I used this gun. And I... I'm still sore. I'm not going to say I'm not sore at all, but it does significantly reduce your soreness the next day, especially if you really push yourself to the limits. So after a workout using this um, to kind of keep those muscles loosened up, not let them stiffen up, or even using it before a workout to loosen up your muscles, is uh, it's a huge help, especially if you uh, don't want to pay for a full body massage. It doesn't like completely mimic a, 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 like something a masseuse could do to you. Um, but I call this like a poor man's massage. You can just, you know, blast your calves with this thing for 10 minutes, um, get them nice and loosened up instead of going to like a, a massage therapist. Um, it's a lot more accessible. So, uh, definitely check those out. The, the brand I have, which I love, it's, it's actually just called muscle gun. It's much more affordable than Theragun, but it has like the same, uh, the, uh, the power of it, the, the motor of it is equivalent to the Theragun. So I, I highly recommend that. Theragun's nice too, if you can afford it. Uh, and then Amazon has plenty of great alternatives as well. Yeah, I got one for uh, Amazon, whatever, their, their big deal day. I got one and uh, yeah, I love it. That's good. Yeah. All right, my plug of the week is Thorn Aminos. So we mentioned Thorn on here a few times and they have a powder like a, a berry powder that is all the essential amino acids. And it tastes really good. There's no sugar or anything in it. So a lot of people, especially in the weightlifting community, people put so much focus on BCAAs, which are branch chain amino acids. And it's just three 
um, of the nine essential amino acids, they're all they're good. Like BCAAs are are good, but if you're just consuming BCAAs every day, that's leucine, isoleucine, and valine. You're missing out on the other six amino acids. Now, ideally, you have a whole foods diet. You're and you're getting all nine essential amino acids from your food. It's called essential because we don't our body doesn't make it. Our, our body does not make it itself, so we have to eat it. We have to get it from our, our diet. And I don't know why, but these meatheads have just pushed BCAAs so much. We actually did a whole episode on this, I don't know, a couple of years ago. So go check that out. Um, we talk about the difference. But this thorn amino has all the essential amino acids. So not only are you getting leucine, isoleucine, and valine, the BCAAs, but on top of that, you're getting lysine, uh, threonine, histidine, cysteine, phenylalanine, methionine, and it tastes really good. Um, I put these in my uh, drink like before or or even after a workout, and it just, you know, helps you stay energized, boosts recovery, supports lean muscle mass, and uh, in days where for some reason maybe I'm not getting uh, everything from all the the amino acids from my food, this kind of just levels things out. So thorn aminos, I think you can get it on Amazon. And uh, yeah, it's really good. All right. I think that was a wrap for this week. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again with another episode next week.